some of the biggest mistakes that athletes make is uh, taking too little or too much. Too little means you're going to run out of energy at some point. Too much, you're going to end up with a lot of GI problems. Talking to athletes at the finish line, they will tell you one of those stories very often. Is the, the percentage of athletes that gets it right um, is actually very small. Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. My name is Alan McCubbin. And I'm Steph Gaskell. We're both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. Each week we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask, sort of things that people are debating out on their training run or ride in a coffee shop afterwards or maybe going online to search for answers. So we'll take those questions, break them down and invite a guest expert in our A episode or an athlete or coach in our B episode to add their unique perspective on the question. Today it's episode 39A, how much carbohydrate should I consume during training and races? And our special guest is Professor Asker Jerkendrup who is a visiting professor at Loughborough University and is also the head of performance nutrition for Team Jumbo Visma, the pro cycling team, as well as the Dutch Olympic team. So in this episode, we're going to look at why carbohydrate is important in both training and on race day. We'll look at what the recommendations are for the amount and type of carbohydrate during exercise. And Asker's research in his previous role at the University of Birmingham was really pivotal in um, setting up all the, the research evidence we have that underpins those guidelines. We'll also look at how these different guidelines need to be interpreted with the various different nuances. So if you're a recreational athlete versus a competitive or elite athlete, if you're running versus cycling and particularly relevant for triathletes where you're doing both, we'll look at whether there's differences depending on how intense the session is, so what the intensity you're working at, and also how long the types of sessions are that you're doing, whether it's training or different distances of racing, and also whether it matters that you're getting your carbs from drinks, gels, bars, or other solid food options as well. We'll look at some of the practical tips and strategies that Asker has from working with a whole bunch of uh, elite and professional runners, cyclists, and triathletes over uh, a couple of decades now, around you know, if you're struggling to get in the recommended amount of carbohydrate, what can you do about that? What are some of his suggestions and advice for that? And then some of his insight into his work in professional cycling with Jumbo Visma. Obviously the Tour de France is just on the horizon and that's a big goal for them this year. As also uh, looking at some of his past work with people like marathon legend, Haile Gebrselesi, and also um, Ironman triathlete, Chrissy Wellington, who uh, won multiple world championships about a decade or so ago. Okay, so Steph, how are you going? I know you've been a little bit crook this week. Hopefully it wasn't my five-hour run to blame, but uh, how are you now? Yeah, no, um, I'll blame it on that hour. Um, I now have got an extra week's break from that, thank goodness. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, just had the cold and have done lots of testing re-COVID and nothing comes out positive for that so that's good and uh now just trying to get myself better to be able to run five hours for this coming week yes yes mm. one week delay but that's all right we've got someone else running that you can uh have yeah. to keep you company just different person this time different person yeah yeah so I'll get to find out his life story over those five hours which will be great 
Um, yep. And what about you, Al? Keeping busy? Yeah, just flat out. It's that time of year. You know, we've got to wrap up all the results for the end of semester one at the uni. So there's all of that going on. Obviously, this study that we've just been talking about, there's a lot of work that goes into that, uh, which we talked about last week as well. So just doing all of those things, um, organising podcast episodes. Yeah, it's all, all happening at the moment. So mm -hmm. I'm looking forward to the end of June when things are going to calm down a bit, I think. Fingers crossed. You know, you always say things are going to calm down. We just get past mm -hmm. this month and then by the time you get there, something else has happened. But, uh, yeah, that's the plan anyway and have a bit of a quieter July. Yeah, yeah, nice. I'm, I'm hanging out for August. Um, so <clears throat> that's when I think I'll be um, becoming a bit more sane again. Yep, well, the finish line's in sight. It is, it is, yeah. So social media shout outs and questions. We had a few. Um, we had a lot last week, I think, so not as many this week. But Instagram, we had uh, Jessica Ross Rothwell and also actually Kate Galash, both dietitians and sports dietitians. Um, and they both mentioned that they're really looking forward to this one um, with some thumbs up. So looking forward to the, the episode with Asuka um, because they've obviously followed his work and recommendations in terms of carbohydrate for exercise on twitter our yeah we're just um my message sarah gigante who obviously did the podcast with us a couple of weeks ago around nutrition in very cold weather just thanking her for her involvement with the podcast and she uh, got back to me said thanks so much she had a lot of fun um but that she'd also discovered an addiction to our podcast um, <laughs> she's been doing a lot of podcast listening recently um, she's been off training a little bit and uh, been binging the long munch. And she said that uh, when she heard the anger during episode one, it must have been our rant around low carb <laughs> diets for endurance training. She said she had a good laugh at that and knew straight away she'd love the podcast. So she's been working <laughs> her way through the catalogue, which is awesome. That's awesome. Maybe it means mm. we, we will get back to those rants, um, but we will get a bit more fired up, I reckon, maybe July for you, Al, and August for me. Yes, I think so. I think when, once you've submitted your thesis, yeah. you'll have plenty of pent-up anger Rage to rant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, and maybe maybe not this week because you've been a bit crook, but have you been out and about and getting feedback from people in the in the real world? Uh, yeah, so Phil um, did, a, did a study of, of mine and so I was just chatting to him and um, he said he heard our podcast with me talking about doing the five-hour run um, and said that's, that's nuts. So unfortunately, I don't think we'll be able to recruit him for this study. Um, <clears throat> and then uh, you actually have been doing a bit of um, my work for me, Al, because I think you've got other feedback yeah well it wasn't in person I wasn't walking into running stores or anything like that Steph but uh, no I did get an email from uh, Brett Singer who's been a uh, he's a sports dietitian over in Houston Texas in the US and um, he's listened to the podcast for quite a bit and often sends us bits and pieces of feedback or uh, retweets things for us which is awesome uh, mm -hmm. and he works at the Memorial Hermann Ironman Sports Medicine Institute uh, amongst other roles over there in Houston uh, and he was just asking me for a copy of um, the paper I recently published, the new sodium paper, and just replied to me saying, thanks for all the work in the lab and on the podcast. Very enjoyable and impactful on my work here. So thanks very much, That's Brett. Awesome. Yeah, thank yeah. you. That's mm. cool. Um, and just a reminder to our listeners that they can find us on um, social media platforms such as Instagram, um, 
Facebook and Twitter uh, and obviously can listen to us on all your popular um, podcast platforms. Let's get ready for this episode, which we are both really, really excited about. So today's episode, Al, is... Yeah, it's episode 39A, how much carbohydrate should I consume during training and races? Uh, And certainly this was a topic that very early on uh, when we were sort of planning the podcast, probably over a year ago, Steph, we sort of said this is one we really want to do and there's only one person we want to get for this podcast and that's Professor Asker Yerkendrup. Uh, Probably the main reason being that when we were both young whippersnappers, um, Mm. starting off in sports nutrition, uh, probably the person who was the most influential from from our perspective as practitioners was Asker and the research he was doing at that time in the sort of the mid, well, from the early 2000s through to probably about 2010, 2011-ish at uh, the University of Birmingham in the UK. And certainly from my perspective, my own personal background wasn't in endurance sports um, but really it was it was Asker's work and all that incredible body of work that was just built on top of each other and this whole sequence of studies that he did over that period was really one of the main things that got me so interested in the science mm. of and the sports nutrition mm. for endurance and ultra-endurance sports in the first place. Um, mm. Really cool stuff coming out and coming out regularly and all building and, and progressing on each one. So mm. uh, it certainly was one of the, the big factors that got me into this area. So it was really cool to be able to get um ask her to come and um and join us and have a, a discussion around this yeah it was um similar for me uh too and um he actually his work was what prompted me to then push my carb intake during my ultra endurance exercise from being like the general recommendations um right up to the sort of which we'll discuss 90 grams or, or more um and um yeah, so it had a big impact on actually how I practice as well. Yeah, and I think I can't think of another single researcher who's had such a profound impact on the sports nutrition industry as well. Mm. Like if you think about some of that work and the change over almost overnight that it made to the formulation of different products in terms of gels and drinks and things like that mm. across a whole range of brands, not all of them obviously, but um, yep. you know, quite a few uh, from the work that he did in Birmingham is, is quite profound as well. Yeah. So these days, Asker is a visiting professor at Loughborough University. Uh, as I said, he was formerly professor of exercise metabolism at the University of Birmingham where he did much of this research into carbohydrate during exercise in all different shapes and forms, and we'll have a bit of a discussion about that in this interview. Uh, In terms of his work as a practitioner, and I think this has been one of Asker's real strengths over the years, is that, yes, he's got that solid academic research side, but he's always been a practitioner as well. Uh, and not just you know a practitioner working with the local club or whatever. Um, how's this for a CV? Chelsea Football Club in the English Premier League. He's worked with Haile Gebrselassie when he broke his marathon world records twice in the late 2000s. He also worked with Chrissy Wellington when she was winning Ironman World Championships left, right and centre as well. Um, he's, he's also the head of performance nutrition these days for Team NL, so the Dutch Olympic team. Uh, we talk a little bit about his role um, in the, the Tokyo Olympics with the Dutch team. He also works for Team Jumbo Visma, which is one of the top pro cycling teams. And as I said before, you know, gunning to win the Tour de France with Primoz Roglic this year. Uh, he also has a role as the head of performance nutrition for the Red Bull Athlete Performance Centre. So that's a centre, there's actually two of them, one in Austria and, and one in the US, 
that looks after a whole bunch of Red Bull sponsored athletes across a whole bunch of different sports from, you know, extreme sports and motor racing through to some of the uh, endurance and ultra endurance sports as well. Uh, and if that wasn't enough, I don't know how this man ever sleeps, but he's also the co-founder and CEO of Core Nutrition Planning. And he'll talk a little bit about that in this discussion, um, his website, fuelthecore.com, uh, and also his other uh, website, which has a whole bunch of infographics around sports nutrition, mysportscience.com as well. So yeah, it's fair to say he gets up to a lot and has mm. done a lot over quite a long period of time. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it was great to have a chat to Asker. Um, we were both really looking forward to it. So many questions. And, and I think where we wanted to really dig into is some of the nuances. I think people are pretty familiar with the general guidelines. But I guess people probably less familiar or had less exposure to discussions around, well, how do you change those guidelines in different scenarios? So whether you're running versus cycling, and you know, triathlon's a good example of that. Um, whether you're a recreational athlete or an elite athlete, um, what happens if you're trying to get to those sort of recommended amounts of carbohydrate, but you're really struggling? Um, what you know, what do you do? How can you achieve that? Both from a practical point of view, but also, for example, a gut tolerance point of view. So there's so many different aspects to this and we really want to, to dig deep into these in a single episode uh, because there's so much to talk about here it is slightly longer one than most of our other episodes but um, I think very much worth it so much great information in here so much really practical stuff uh, and if you're like us here freezing in the southern half of mm -hmm. Australia in winter um, you'll hear the nice summer birds chirping outside mm. Asker's window throughout <laughs> this so no you're not hallucinating um, he had the window open in the uh, the sunny countryside in England there. And um, yeah, that's what you'll be hearing. Awesome. Let's uh, get stuck into it. Yeah, let's do it. Asker Jokendrop, welcome to the Long Munch. How are you going over there in the UK? All good here. So uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Oh, no, absolute pleasure. Um, Steph and I were, when we first started the podcast, probably 18 months ago now, we sort of said that there was a list of people that we really thought would be great to have a conversation with, and you were definitely on that list. So um, that's great to, to have you here. Um, now, you've done just about everything, both as a, a researcher and an academic in that sort of scientific area of sports nutrition, but as well as a practitioner. You know, you've worked in the English Premier League. Um, you've worked in professional cycling, you've worked with the likes of Haile Gebrselesi and Chrissy Wellington, you know, the Dutch Olympic team, and, and nowadays with the Red Bull Athlete Performance Centre as well, and, and your own sort of private consultancy. But I'm curious how you got into sports nutrition in the first place. Where, where did that interest sort of come from, and, and also how you found yourself, you know, now living in the UK? Yeah. Yeah, so my, I, I think like like many of us, I think my interest came from an interest in sport. So I was just as a kid, very interested in sport, especially endurance sports. Um, I was a decent cyclist and uh, I also tried triathlon um, occasionally, but then discovered that I wasn't very good at swimming. Um, <laughs> running was okay, but cycling was definitely the, the preference. And then um, <clears throat> I was a decent cyclist, uh, so at some point I had to sort of make this decision. Do I try and like make that a career or shall I go to university? And uh, I obviously decided to go to university and uh, mm. never really regretted that. <clears throat> and I went to university studying, it was called movement sciences in, uh, at Maastricht University in the Netherlands. Um, and... 
yeah, I did that with uh, Professor Harm Kuipers, who is uh, he was a, a world champion speed skater. Um, and I'd seen him on TV, like testing athletes in the lab. And that's really what sort of triggered me to go into this direction of exercise physiology. Um, I stayed at Maastricht University to do a PhD, then combined um, sort of the exercise physiology with a lot of biochemistry and some nutrition. Um, and that's sort of, that was the start of it. Mm. Um but also i've i've always tried to like from the very beginning try to like do some of the science and do some of the research but also like translate that into practical application so from <clears throat> the period of my phd um i was already working with a professional cycling team for example and i was already working with the dutch olympic committee at a at the at time just to try and see if we could uh, translate some of the science in to something more practical, yeah. Um, because even even today, there's still a, a big gap, I think, between the science on one one side and then the uh, practice on the other side. So, yeah. yeah cool. So that was the uh, yeah the, the very early beginnings, and then uh, mm-hmm. yeah, how did did I end up in England? I I went to the US first for a postdoc, um, spent time with uh, with Ed Coyle who was oh, yeah. my at the time my my inspiration really so the the papers that um <clears throat> that he and his team published in the late 1980s the, they were the papers that uh, that really got me excited about this topic of carbohydrate feeding during exercise so i spent some time in um, in texas and then i accepted a position at the university of birmingham started small uh, with very little lab space, very small office. And then uh, over the course of a few years, we built us out to one of the largest sports science departments in the world. And um, mm. so, uh, and then most of the research was like sports nutrition uh, related. And then after that, I've done a number of different things, all somewhat linked to uh, sports nutrition, but worked in industry, um, done some more consulting and so um developed some software as well so I, I can now talk about sports nutrition from a lot of different angles not yeah. just the uh, not just the academic angle so. yeah. yeah yeah absolutely um now you, your current roles as a practitioner you know you do you have a role with Jumbo Visma the professional cycling team obviously Tour de France coming up pretty soon will be a, a big one for them uh, you mentioned obviously the Dutch Olympic Committee as well, uh, and also the Red Bull Athlete Performance Center. But can you tell us a little bit first about your role with Jumbo Visma and, and what you do in that role? Is um, you know you're consulting from home, are you traveling with the team, are you going to races, a bit of everything, and sort of how does that work? Yeah, yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit of everything. So sometimes it's uh, I, I could do uh, the bits and pieces from home. Sometimes I travel with the team, and this is usually um training camps because i think they're more um sort of meaningful in in like actually trying to make changes so you the preparation phase is really important so so it makes more sense to travel uh in the training camps sometimes than it does in in races yeah and and also during races there is support so um when i started with your movisma um 
uh, it was a very small team. It was uh, it was me and then a chef who actually did the uh, the day to day work with the team, and not even in all races, in some of the races. And over the last sort of few years, this has really built out now. And now I think the team is about twelve or maybe even thirteen um, dietitians and chefs that work with the uh, with the team. And the team has also grown, of course. So it's, there's a there's a women's team, development team, mm. um, as well as the, uh, the the pro team. So, how many riders are there in total there that you're looking after across both the men's and women's teams? Um, I would say it's around seventy in uh, okay. in, in total. So yep. it's uh, yeah, it's quite a quite a large number, and they're they're always at different locations, of course. So that's, that's yeah, yeah, one yeah. one of the reasons why you need like a lot of people if you want to support it all. Mm. But I mean, that's pretty good in terms of having, you know, like one sports nutritionist or dietitian to about seven-ish athletes. It's kind of a, a good number to have. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. this uh, this for sure. Uh, but it's also, it's it's part of where the system that was developed within the uh, the team where we, we have software that really helps us to guide what athletes eat uh, when they're at home, when they're in training camps, or when they when they're racing, uh, but uh, especially uh, the training camps and when they're racing, um, the the chefs and the dietitians, they uh, they help with the execution of it, of course. Mm, yeah, definitely. And I think in terms of you know the number of athletes per dietitian, I think that would probably be the lowest of any team going around. I think you know most other teams might have maybe two or three nutritionists for a squad of you know yeah. 30 to 60 riders or something yeah but that's also where we came from it was very small mm. to begin with but then obviously we built something that that really works that the riders believe in that uh, the management believes in everyone believes in and uh, um but it's also it's not easy to execute because the sort of the whole logistics behind it also is uh, is an enormous operation and uh, so the sponsor Jumbo is a supermarket um, and they take care of a lot of the sort of the the operational side of that. Mm, yep. Yeah. Cool. Um, and how about your role with the Red Bull Athlete Performance Center? I think a lot of people will be familiar with you know obviously Red Bull as a brand and some of the different sports that they work in um, and they do sponsor you know endurance athletes in you know running cycling triathlon amongst others but what does your role there involve? Yeah so it's um, I think the official title is just head of performance nutrition for uh, for Red Bull it's uh, it, it's a very large number of sports a very large number mm. of athletes uh, also um athletes are really like everywhere all over the all over the world and then mm. the, the sports are indeed like some ultra endurance athletes but also um so, some of the um very short sports and um formula one is a big part of that of course and uh guys that fly uh planes upside down through tunnels and mm. <laughs> so the the variation um is is just incredible um so my role is to make sure that all of those athletes receive the the appropriate nutrition support so i don't have to do that uh, myself we have a we have a team of people who deliver the uh, the nutrition services sometimes i get involved myself but usually um it's the team that is based in uh, in austria or in um, in la uh, they they deliver most of the uh, the services so 
um, for me, it's it's just making sure that the right advice is given at the different different places that we give at all these different locations in all these different countries, different cultures that we give uh, consistent um, advice. Um, and uh, yeah, just making sure that we work with one sort of vision and one, uh, because as you know, there's a lot of a lot of ideas and a lot of ways you could work in uh, in sports nutrition. Yeah. And, uh, and I try to streamline that, make sure that uh, if you go to a Red Bull Athlete Performance Center, you always get consistent advice and doesn't matter who you get it from or where you go to. So, yeah, cool. No, that all makes sense. Um, now, today we're talking about carbohydrate during exercise. Um, and you mentioned, obviously, you know, uh, following a lot of the work of Ed Coyle and that sort of got you interested in sports nutrition. And I think for Steph and I, sort of coming through in the you know, the 2000s, it was very much the work that you guys were doing at Birmingham, which was sort of all the stuff coming out at that time on endurance sports, yeah. which I think got us really interested in that. And, you know, you did a whole series of studies on carbohydrate during exercise from sort of the mid-1990s, probably through to the the mid-2010s, really. Um, firstly, at the University of Birmingham, and I think you're, you're affiliated with Loughborough these days. Um, but what sort of got you into that specific area of looking at carbohydrate during exercise? And how did you manage to string together, like, it's just so many different studies on that topic, one after the other after the other over a period of, you know, 15 odd years? Yeah, I think this is... I think, unfortunately, uh, we, we don't see this very often. I, I see that now researchers are hopping from one topic to another mm. topic. And what we try to do is really tell a story and very systematically like uh, address all the questions that we had. Some were more fundamental questions, like how does this work? Others were like more practical questions, just like how much and how and um uh, a lot of the questions came from practice, listening to listening to athletes, listening to the questions that are still out there uh, today. I think, um, mm. and then turning it into uh, into research questions. But um, it it wasn't the only topic that we worked on. So I, I did uh, work in like uh, obesity and diabetes research as well. That uh, that mm. fewer people know about. I did quite a bit of work on overtraining, and uh, but this area of sort of carbohydrate metabolism during exercise is something that we investigated very, very systematically. Um, and initially, it, it started off with uh, an observation, and usually that, that's how research works. It, you, you start with an observation. The observation was that in all those studies, um, it, it seemed that you couldn't get more carbohydrate use from a drink or whatever you use, the gel, or um, you couldn't use more than one gram per minute or 60 grams of carbohydrate per hour. And that really got, got us thinking. It's like, why? What, what is that limitation? Why is it only 60 grams an hour? Um, so we designed a whole series of studies to find out what that limitation was. We looked at gastric emptying. We looked at um, with stabilizer top tracers. What, what's actually happening in the muscle? Is there a limitation in the muscle? It turned out it wasn't any of those uh, factors. And the, the only thing that, um, that we were left with was um, it had to be something 
uh, absorption related. Um, and that, that's interesting because even today you can read in textbooks that the capacity of the gut to absorb carbohydrate, ob- absorb glucose is virtually unlimited. Um, and so here we had an observation. The only reason we could really explain it, if the, the gut was limiting and absorption was limiting. Um, and then once we had established it had to be that, we, we then started to look at, okay, is there something we can do about it? Can we speed up absorption? And yeah, by working with different uh, types of carbohydrate that use different transporters in the gut, we, we were able to, uh, to find ways. So once we had established that, it was like, okay, now we, we know a mechanism how to improve this. What's, like, what's the best way to do it? What combination of carbohydrates and how much should we give? So, yeah, it's a whole series of studies that followed then. Once we had the answer to that and we knew what theoretically we, we could deliver, um, we then turned to all of the practical questions. It's like, how should we give it? Uh, does it matter whether it's a drink or a gel or a bar? Or um, Does it matter whether you give it every five minutes or every 15 minutes? Th- those sorts are like very practical uh, questions we started to uh, look at. Um, and then one of the last studies um, uh, was really all like studies that, that were at the end were the really important studies is the one that really matters is does it actually improve performance? Mm-hmm. Now, what, what a lot of people do, I think, very early on is they immediately go to that question. They look at a supplement or uh, a strategy or a diet or whatever, and then immediately try to figure out like does it improve performance but if you don't understand exactly how it works it's really difficult to then design a good performance study that Mm. gives you this effect so you may just end up with a study that says oh there's no effect on performance but it wasn't designed uh, properly Um, so for, for example if we'd done a performance study at the start maybe um we would would have done a study with multiple transportable carbohydrates, but not actually fed enough carbohydrate. And we would not have seen an effect. Or we would have done uh, something that was where the exercise was too short, because I don't think it really works if it's two hours of exercise. This is something that works if it's longer, if it's two and a half, Mm. three hours or longer. but because we had done so much work and we had such good understanding of what's actually happening, we could also design the performance study that then clearly showed that there was a performance benefit. Yeah. Um, and then it's great to see, of course, if others also confirm that uh, the exact same findings. So, yeah. Yeah. So I think what we've ended up with is pretty sort of solid evidence in that area. And it's one of the few areas, I think, in sports nutrition where we have really solid evidence I'm, I'm very like confident that we can give really good advice to athletes in this area yep yep no exactly right okay so um it seems i guess so simple to ask the question how much carbohydrate should i consume during training and races but um as we'll see today there's an awful lot to unpack here so firstly why do we even need to worry about this question about how much carbohydrate I should have during training and racing? 
I think the most important reason is that uh, I think some of the biggest mistakes that athletes make is uh, taking too little or too much. Too little means you're going to run out of energy at some point, especially if it's prolonged, prolonged exercise. Uh, too much, you're going to end up with a lot of GI problems. Um, mm. And I think talking to athletes at the finish line, they will tell you one of those stories very often. There's a, the, the percentage of athletes that gets it right um, is actually very small. It's amazing, but it is mm. small. And then, and then all, like really the advice is simple. All you need to do is find something in the middle that works, where this, which is just gives you enough, but not too much so that you get problems. So people overdo it or they underdo it. And uh, yeah. so that's why it's important. Um, and so, as we've just talked about, you've done a lot of research on this very topic. So, how much is enough to fuel endurance training and races? Yeah, so this this depends, I think, mostly on one factor, and that is the duration of exercise. That's the, the most important factor. So, if, if the exercise is very short, if it's less than an hour, for example, you, you don't really need to worry about this. Um, mm. I mean, there are studies that show that even with a carbohydrate mouth rinse, just where always you give a very small amount of carbohydrate, you can, you can see some uh, performance benefits, but it's a slightly different mechanism. It's an effect mm. on, on, the, on the brain, but not so much providing energy to the muscle. Yeah. Um, if the exercise becomes longer, then your need for carbohydrate becomes greater. And especially if you go over like two and a half or three hours, this is where it can really make a big difference. Um, so we, we have this overview of like, if the exercise is shorter than like roughly an hour, you don't need very much. If it's one to two hours, it's about 30 grams an hour. If it's one to two, you can move that up to 60 grams of carbohydrate per hour. Um, and then if you go, if you push beyond sort of two and a half hours, you should really consider taking 90 grams an hour. But that, this is where it gets a little bit more complicated because if you mm. get that wrong, um, it can also cause uh, a lot of stomach problems. Mm. Um, if you go to 90 grams an hour, you have to pay attention to the types of carbohydrate um, that you take, you also have to just practice this as another common mistake I think that athletes make is they they train the whole year with very little carbohydrate uh, in, in their normal training and then they go to the races and they've read it is very important to take gels and drinks and all sorts of stuff and mm. they then discover that, uh, yeah, the gut is not used to that. So it's, uh, yeah, yeah train, training it uh, seems to be definitely a way to uh, prevent some of those problems. And do you think there's like, um, there's an intensity element there as well? Because I guess, you know, when we get to the exercise going longer than, you know, two and a half hours or so, and we get to talking about ultra endurance or those endurance events where it's much longer, but the intensity is obviously a lot less than a marathon pace. Um, do you think that those people that are exercising for those long hours sh should be still considering potentially 90 grams of carbs an hour? Um, yeah, I think this is, this is a really interesting, also quite a difficult uh, question because um, 
intensity can mean a lot of different things. Intensity mm. can mean I'm working really hard, mm. but it could still be a low intensity if I'm not mm. a very trained athlete. Or mm. it could be um, uh, like a professional athlete who's not working very hard, who still spends a lot of energy. Mm. Yeah. And what really matters is the absolute intensity is so essentially the power you're producing the speed you're going at that's mm. that's what really matters that's gonna mm. determine how many calories you need that's also gonna determine in large part how many carbohydrates you need mm. um and in reality i think it's a little bit simpler it's there there is it's basically it's a it's almost like an on or an off so if you reach if you're above a certain absolute intensity, you can just work with the 90 grams an hour. Mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't matter what type of athlete you are. Uh, as long as you uh, spend enough calories, it's it's fine. You, you can try this 90 grams. Of course, if you're running sort of a five-hour marathon, and that, mm. and that's, that's sort of four and a half, five hours is, uh, for a marathon, I think it's sort of cut off where I would say, you don't need to worry about sort of 90 grams an hour and it's probably yeah. just much better to to take a lower uh, smaller amount of carbohydrate and just go safe on uh, mm. on gi problems mm. um, mm -hmm. but i think um even someone who runs a four-hour marathon i think they can benefit from 90 grams an hour mm. if you calculate it um because there's a lot of athletes also like worried about their weight and everything. Mm. And <laughs> there's always the question, yeah, but should I take that much? But if you calculate it, it, it is not actually that much. Uh, you can never replace the amount of energy that yeah. you're using yeah. during, yeah. during exercise. It's still only uh, a percentage of that yet you're replacing. Uh, yeah. Even if you take as much as 90 grams an hour. Mm. Mm -hmm. And um, you've you've already kind of touched on this, but I guess going into it in a little bit more detail. Um, so just talking about the type of carbohydrate and whether that matters um, in terms of you know glucose fructose, and then if you can also just touch on, do we know if the actual form matters in terms of whether it be bars, gels, or chews? Yeah. Yeah, so the type, the type of carbohydrate uh, and the mix of carbohydrate is, uh, is very important, at least uh, if you go over an intake of 60 grams an hour. If you, if you take less than 60 grams, you, you really don't need to worry that much about it. Um, it but if, you, if you're pushing over 60 grams an hour, it is um, very important that you make sure that you use the two transporters that we have in the gut or the two important transporters. One of them is the uh, SGLT1. It's the name of the transporter. It transports glucose. Um, but it, uh, it doesn't matter whether you take glucose or something like maltodextrins, uh, for example, because the maltodextrins are essentially glucose. They're broken down very quickly in the, uh, in the intestine. It becomes glucose, and then it uses the SGLT1 transporter. The other transporter is GLUT5. That's a transporter that uses uh, fructose. And it's really, it only transports fructose. So you need a combination of something like glucose or maltodextrins, or it could be a starch that is broken down to glucose, plus fructose. Um, the ratio of those two, um, 
there is no like, well let me f- say first that because you read a lot about the optimal ratio i don't mm. think there is an optimal ratio it's <laughs> nonsense yeah what you need to do is you need to saturate the sglt1 transporter and you do that by giving 60 grams per hour mm. then on top of that you need to give as much fructose as you can tolerate essentially so and, and generally more would be better um, but mm-hmm. as soon as you would develop stomach problems it's mm. not a good idea this is why we recommend, well, recommended in the in all of the guidelines that we've written, ninety grams an hour. Because not not because ninety is better than anything else. It's just mm. it's a little bit um, it's practical for most people. It's still mm-hmm. possible to do this. Um, mm-hmm. Hundred and twenty, as some yeah. athletes will do, may be yeah. better. Yeah. But it's not very practical, and not many people can actually do that. If you can do it, it's fine. Yeah. So if you have 90 grams an hour, and that's fairly practical, it would be a ratio of glucose to fructose of 2 to 1. 60 grams an hour comes from glucose and 30 grams an hour comes from fructose. Mm. If you really want to try 120 grams an hour, Mm. well, uh, (laughs) give it a go. But you need a different ratio. You need a ratio of 1 to 1. Yeah. So that's why... You can't say there is a perfect optimal uh, ratio uh, because it depends whether you want to target 90 or 120 grams an hour. Mm-hmm. And is the glucose, the, that transporter, is that um, saturated at, at, is it sort of like, yeah, 60 is the hard number or can it potentially get up to 70, you know, for glucose or maltodextrin? Yeah, it can probably get up to 70. Um, a bit of a buffer. Kind but of. yeah, so six, yeah. 60 is, is sort of, um, it's interesting because if, if I look at all of the studies and this is hundreds of subjects that have gone yeah. through this, uh, you don't often see uh, more than 60 grams per hour of oxidation. Yeah. Um, but there is the odd individual that, yeah, yeah that way you find 1.1 1. 1 and it's like, yeah. On, yep. on average, it's actually well below uh, 60 yeah. grams an hour or one gram a minute. Uh, but occasionally, yeah. you may have someone, and maybe this is someone who has a very high carbohydrate intake in their diet or they yeah. use a lot of like sports nutrition products in their training. Uh, don't know, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it is trainable. But um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And so yeah. we know for those glucose transporters, that ceiling is around that 60-ish grams an yeah. hour. Do we know yeah. if there's a similar ceiling for the fructose transporters and roughly where that would be? There doesn't seem to be, or at least I I can't. If I go back to the to the literature, I can't really see what that ceiling is. Mm. What the limiting factor there is just GI problems. Um, mm. We we know that if you just give fructose without without the glucose, that that's a great recipe to get some diarrhea and uh, and, and all sorts of GI problems. Mm. Um, as soon as you add glucose, though, that that really helps the fructose absorption and also the other way around. So, um, and you really reduce the the symptoms. Um, and yeah. it's also in the literature fairly consistent. I think if you give the same amount of glucose versus glucose and fructose, you'll see less uh, GI problems with the mix of the uh, the carbohydrates. Mm. Um, so yeah, we don't think there is a ceiling to how much fructose you can 
you can take up the, the the ceiling there is more how much you can tolerate yeah and i guess as that gets higher and higher that ratio with glucose starts to get one to one or even tip the other way so there's more fructose than glucose and then you're starting to run into problems via yeah. that way yeah. yeah 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 okay that makes sense and yeah. do you do you get a like you know, you talked about that two-to-one ratio and that there is no magic ratio. I remember when you published that paper, I think it was 2008 with Kevin Curl, the, the performance one that you mentioned earlier, yep. and it was like almost overnight, every sports nutrition company had a two-to-one ratio product and this was the, the magic ratio kind of thing. Yep. Did you kind of look back and, and have a bit of a chuckle to yourself at that stage when all of this was happening? Yeah, I think at, at the time it was – I. Um, so of course the we we had a really clear reason why it was ninety grams an hour and why that um, because it is still a practical right it's it's significantly more than sixty grams an hour it's not so much that uh, that that no one can do it so from that point of view I, I still think it's um, it's a good ratio for practical uh, reasons but yeah claiming that it's the perfect ratio is uh, that that's nonsense of course and all your products had to be this exact ratio yeah 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 exactly mm-hmm. yeah plus I think and, and now I come to the other question as after you asked about like what like how like how does they type of carbohydrate uh, gels bars uh, drinks mm. That's the reality of the situation, of course. People don't just drink one drink. They, like in longer events, you combine solid foods with gels and uh, liquid foods and everything ends up in the stomach. It gets mixed. And uh, this this is the other thing that drives me crazy. People have these like very long discussions about how a sports drink needs to be 7.6 percent and it cannot be more than eight percent it's, it's it's nonsense because all all this stuff gets mixed in the stomach and then as as soon as you mix solid food with that sports drink your whole theory about osmolality and all those things it's it's out of the window it's pointless mm-hmm. so um i think the doesn't matter whether you have drinks gels or bars um i think uh, drinks and gels are like identical as long as you drink the same volume of fluid and of course <laughs> it, it is whether you mix um, a gel with water in a bottle or whether you do that in the, in the stomach it doesn't it doesn't really matter mm. um, bars are a little bit different um, if you had a bar that uh, that has very little else than carbohydrate the glucose and fructose it would behave the same as as a gel um if however you have uh, protein fat and fiber as a lot of bars uh, have um, you're going to slow down gastric emptying and you're going to slow down the delivery of everything else carbohydrate mm. fluids um so if you choose a bar um choose a bar that has the right ratios that mixes with your your other products that have also those ratios um and avoid bars that are high in f- uh, fat, fiber, and protein, because that's just going to slow things down. So that would be that would be my advice. But then, if you have that bar that uh, that has nothing else than carbohydrate, essentially, um, you can mix it really well with uh, gels and drinks, and it, it you can mix it all in the stomach, and it will work. It will deliver the amount of carbohydrate that you uh, that you're targeting. Yeah. And yeah. I mean that comes back to probably some of those 
um, newer sports drinks that have come out in the last few years that are more like a 15% mix rather than that sort of 6 to 8% you mentioned before. And presumably that's just if you're going to get anywhere near that 90 grams an hour, if you're just drinking 6 to 8% mix, you're going to need litres of the stuff per hour to get anywhere near that. So you're going to have exactly. to go for something more concentrated. Otherwise, you're just never going to get that amount of carbohydrate in. Yeah, exactly. And, I, and again, I don't think that product per se is better. It's just mm. a practical solution for mm. what you're trying to do. Mm. So, um, and I think that there's the question about hydration as well, that uh, of course, hydration is important. Uh, but the most important factor for that is how much you drink. It's, uh, it's, it's actually pretty simple. So, mm. um, and this, this is how we, we developed the, a bit of software. Maybe that's uh, good to mention at this uh, point. Uh, so the software is called Core, and you can find it on fuelthecore.com. And what we try to do is develop a tool for athletes where they can say, okay, this is the race I'm going to do. It's, it's going to take this, this is the distance. This is how long it's going to take me. Um, and then you answer a number of questions that are important to give the uh, the appropriate advice. But essentially, the software asks or tries to determine what is your carbohydrate requirement for that event, whether it's a training or race, and then what is the fluid requirement for that event, which of course depends on sweat rate, it depends and which depends on the conditions, but it also depends on your intensity. So it, it tries to calculate your uh, or estimate your sweat rate. Uh, based on that, it tries to come up with a fluid advice. And then based on sort of the duration and the intensity and, and some other information that you give us, we, we also calculate uh, a carbohydrate requirement. And then the end result is basically you have a certain amount of fluid, you have a certain amount of carbohydrate, and then you mix that together. That's your end target for the whole uh, race or for the whole uh, training. And then you go and pick the products that can deliver that. Mm. So in that, uh, in that software, um, we, we have over 2,000 products. And then you can pick those products that you want to use. And of course, um, if you're going up to 90 grams an hour, for example, you can't just use any products. You have to mm. be like really thoughtful about, okay, which products uh, have the right ratio. And if I combine them, they still have the right ratio. Um, so this, the software does, does help you uh, with, with that. So um, mm. that's maybe a tool that, uh, that people can look at and that will help. Um, it takes what, what we've discussed so far as the basis, but then it also personalizes a little bit. Um, and one of the uh, one of the ways it personalizes it is if you're someone who never trains with drinks or gels, for for example, then ninety grams an hour could be quite a lot. Um, but if you do that all the time, it's not going to be a problem. Mm. Uh, so uh, how used you are to taking carbohydrate um, will also affect the uh, the advice that you will receive. The same thing with um, if you have an athlete who doesn't uh, or tries to avoid carbohydrates normally in, uh, in, in their daily life during training, and uh, there's quite a few athletes like that, um, but then they go to races and they still believe, yeah, if I take the carbohydrate, that's going to help me. 
Um, but especially in that group of athletes, uh, like going for 90 grams an hour is probably not a good idea. And, and because your body is just not used to carbohydrate and probably cannot absorb it at the rate that, uh, that someone who has carbohydrate in their diet uh, can absorb it. So there's a lot of factors that you can use to, to sort of fine tune and personalize the advice a little bit more. And um, you also can come across just, I think, to get this one cleared up as well for listeners, um, they often make your recommendations online, particularly in terms of how much carbs to get in, referring to grams per kilo per hour um, versus um, grams per hour. Um, can you explain that one and whether those differences matter? Yeah, sometimes it's... Um it makes a lot of sense to express things per kilogram and take the body size of someone into into account in this case and this is purely based on all the studies that we did it doesn't seem to be important at all mm. so these this 60 grams an hour limitation that we talked about we saw this in everyone in very mm. small athletes and very large athletes um and the amount of carbohydrate that someone can absorb and then use um seems to be very consistent across the board um mm. maybe there is a little bit difference in those that consume very high carbohydrate diets versus those mm. that don't but but overall it's it's pretty much the same limitation so it wouldn't make any sense to express this per kilogram body weight even though sort of intuitively you would say oh yeah someone who a larger athlete just needs more but um We've, we've, we've published a paper on this uh, topic that actually the smaller athletes have a little advantage here, right? Because they, uh, relatively speaking, they can uh, take in a much larger amount of uh, carbohydrate. So it's, it's the same advice for the small person and for the large uh, person. But um, if you express it per kilogram body weight, they, they actually get a lot more. Mm, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember when I was lean and mean and like about 48 kilos running uh, like a 50, 50k race and yeah, got in like 90 grams of carbs an hour very easily but because I had trained on it and I think that's like a key thing there is um, just so many people are just not training on it, they're having lower carb sort of diets generally um, and then, yeah, and then they're not spending the time to, to properly train um, with yep. it. So, yeah, mm. I think that's a big key one for people that we always try and hone in is, is the gut training yep. aspect. Yep, very yeah, very much so. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you've worked with some fabulous um, runners in your time, elite runners, cyclists and, and triathletes. Um you sort of mentioned already, but um, do you find that there are differences in how much they can get in during training or a race? Um, and if so, is it a gut tolerance issue or is it more like a practical issue or or is it something else? Because I know, like, at least what I've read in terms of you working with Hallie, um, Gabrielle, Celesi and Chrissy, um, Chrissy, I think, was getting up to... I'm not sure, 120, Gab Gabrielle maybe up to 90 or so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. so <clears throat> I think it's also slightly different times because uh, mm. so long ago now that uh, mm. it was all very new, 90 grams an hour 
was just unheard of at the time now it's yeah. like it's a little bit more common but at the time like even a, like a marathon runner who take 30 grams that would probably be the record holder 30 yeah. grams an hour um yeah. so so to then go from 30 grams an hour actually i, I don't think that highly uh, he just drank water uh, before that yeah, so we before, we went yes. from just just drinking a few sips of water uh, to 90 grams an hour it's uh, mm. yeah a big a big jump mm. um and it's, it's the interesting part of that story is that that actually happened in um the london, london marathon which that was the first time in his life that he actually ran out of energy yeah. uh, he never never experienced that before but uh and so after that he uh, he tried to get help and, and to, to see how it could be improved and then yeah. yeah, of course, we uh, the advice was ninety grams an hour from the start, but it took a long time to actually build up, build up to that. And uh, mm-hmm. um, but he never had any problems with taking taking that amount. It's like he could tolerate like incredible, incredible amounts. It was never a problem. And in terms um, of that taking a while to build up, are we talking months or years to get to that ninety grams an hour from essentially months, zero? Months, yeah. months, yeah. Yeah, and maybe maybe even this is where the literature is still uh, still lacking um, a lot of evidence. I think it's uh, it's like how long does it actually take, and what's mm. like how much can you really adapt it? Um, so we we just have to go back to animal uh, studies, and in animal studies, it seems that this adaptation is incredibly rapid. Um, so it's just days; it's not even months. It's like day in days you can see these adaptations and uh, in humans we just don't don't know how often you need to train it uh, how many times a week you, uh, yeah, if you do, because it's not probably not something you would do every day but mm. um so yeah there's still a lot of questions there of like what what is the best way um mm. and yeah maybe maybe it doesn't matter that much as long as you do practice it uh, yeah. at least one once a week or something what, what, pardon the pun, but what's your gut feeling about that? Like in terms of how frequently people need to do this to be able to get that adaptation? Is it once a week, twice a week, more often? Um, I, I think you can get pretty good adaptations with once a week. And then uh, I, I can see, actually, you you it's very easy to do. Um, you just start at the amount that you can tolerate and uh just like try to really push the intake on like i don't know saturday long run or sunday long bike ride um and you you will see that in over the course of four or five weeks that what you can take in improves massively so Mm -hmm. something like an amount that the first time is problematic uh, or at least very uncomfortable uh, becomes really comfortable after just five six weeks so um, that doesn't necessarily mean that absorption or anything is improved, but it's like the tolerance and how that feels, which of course in races is going to be really important too. Um, that that can improve in just a few weeks. So just doing it once a week. Mm. And it's interesting because I think a lot of, particularly at elite level cyclists, it, it, that's quite common now and has been, I think, for a while Um but probably in runners, they're the ones that are struggling to get to those levels a bit more. Do you think that's because 
it is harder in running or do you think it's just that they haven't put in that sort of application to try it as much maybe as the cyclists have done they haven't just they need to do it more i i think it's a bit a little bit of both um although from from the studies that we've done i would have to say it's completely trainable um because we've yeah we've we've seen runners go to yeah tolerate 90 grams an hour with zero problems like no no problem at all um there's always the argument yeah but it's this up and down movement of the uh of of the gut and yeah i i get some of that um but i i think it is it is trainable to a very large degree um and of course cyclists um generally their training sessions are longer they're very used to taking uh carbohydrate with them because they know what happens if they don't Mm. Um, and so they're just a little bit more used and runners will do a lot of sessions without any, without any food, uh, maybe even before breakfast. And, um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely the, the less trained than, uh, cyclists. So I think, uh, just adding in a little bit of training, that gut training would, uh, would definitely help in that uh, group. Mm. And I guess on the bike, one of those advantages is it's much easier to carry all that carbohydrate with you. You know, you've got jersey pockets, you've got various ways you can attach it to the bike itself. And, you know, triathletes do that all the time as well. Any sort of practical tips for, for runners or people who are going out doing run training sessions, even if they're triathletes, in terms of how they can get that amount of carbohydrate? Obviously, on race day, it's different because you've got aid stations and things. But when you're just going out and training on the weekend, any tips on, on how people manage to achieve that practically? Yeah, I mean, you've got race stations in in marathons and some ultra runs, but not in all, right? So mm. there's also ultra runs where you have to just take everything yourself and then it becomes, yeah, a real puzzle. It's like, what, what are you going to do? How much are you going to uh, target? So, yeah, these the, the practical questions are incredibly important, I think. Um but what we did in um, in Ethiopia was uh, with very limited sort of resources. We um, uh, we had a figure eight uh, course where at the uh, the center uh, we had a table or two tables actually one one table where they would pick up the bottle and then they would uh, drink from that bottle, put it back on the uh, on the second table and then they would do their loop and they come back uh grab the bot the same bottle again and drop it at the other table um so that's that's something i think that a lot of people can do just in that uh, in that way just to make sure that, that every like 10 15 minutes you can take some of that um, some of that drink um, or if you really want to uh, ideally probably you simulate exactly what's going to happen in the uh, in the race so see how often are these aid stations in the uh, in the marathon how how many minutes is it um uh, until the next uh, aid station for me um and then yeah just design your little training course like that um, but make sure that in the center you have your drinks uh, available all the time yeah yeah makes sense Cool. It's also, I guess, very common for athletes to kind of say, and you hear this all the time when you're working with athletes, they say, oh, you know, well, yeah, I'm well fueled at the start. Like when I go out, whether it's training or a race, you know, I'm well fueled at the start because I've, you know, eaten plenty of carbohydrate in the lead up to that. And so 
my rule of thumb is I don't have anything for the first two hours, and then after that I start start taking my carbohydrate. I can see the smile on your face there because yeah. you probably heard this story as well. Um, yeah. Do you feel that that's a sensible approach or not? Um, and, and what do you recommend with the athletes that you work with? Um, I, I would recommend to start uh, as soon as possible. It's the same argument with uh, drink to thirst. It's like, yeah, of course you can wait till you're thirsty and then start your drinking plan. Um, but um, it's probably best to start immediately. The the first hours of a long race, the, the gut is still working very well. So mm. it'll absorb things without without any problems three four hours into uh, a hard race that may be very different and absorption may become impaired gastric emptying may be become impaired um so the gut is not functioning uh, as optimal anymore and you're probably causing more and unnecessary uh, gi problems you could have started very early on with like smallish uh, amounts um I mean, the second reason would be if if your target is 90 grams an hour for a certain duration of a, of a race, um, if you skip the first two hours uh, and you still want to get to 90 grams an hour for the entire duration of the race, you really have to increase your intake uh, in the second part of the race. Or if you skip the first two hours and then you go to 90 uh, grams an hour, Actually, what you will end up is maybe 70 grams an hour that you have achieved at the finish. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, w- I, would de- I would definitely start start early, uh, maybe even already before the start, just in the in sort of the 10 minutes before the start. That's, that's where you take a first uh, gel or uh, sip of a higher carbohydrate solution. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, because I guess, like, yeah, people will say, well, I'm well-fueled, I don't need to consume it until i've depleted but essentially you're leaving you know 180 grams potentially on the table that you could have added to the mix later down the track yeah um now obviously we've talked a lot about carbohydrate um in its role as a fuel source you know we use it because we produce energy from it but are there other important roles that carbohydrate has or other reasons why it's beneficial to have carbohydrate during exercise besides being just purely a fuel source? Um, well, it's going to be mostly as a fuel source, but I think it's uh, especially during very prolonged exercise, there are uh, studies that, that show that if you don't take the carbohydrate, that protein breakdown is really accelerated. So that would be, I think, the uh, the, the most important other reason to uh, to make sure that you're well-fueled. It's, a, it's just a function of being well-fueled, I think. Mm, yeah. Um so, but yeah, other than that, I think it's mostly just about fuel. Yeah. Okay. And are there times with athletes that you work with where you're deliberately wanting them to consume sort of less than the recommended amount of carbohydrate? I mean, we spoke to Sam Impey a while ago and, you know, there's that sort of research around fat adaptation and, and trying to like, I guess, finish a training session with a fairly low level of glycogen, that carbohydrate store in your muscle to try and get some adaptation occurring. Do you tend to use that in your own practice with athletes you work with or, or not so much? Yeah, so, yeah, um, I do. I do, um, And I think if 
we we talked about one session a week where you train with very high carbohydrate availability and and you take all these uh, the, the gels and the drinks and you practice your race situation but you still six other days in the uh, in the week um, and there's really no need i think to train high carb every single day so sometimes it may actually be it could be beneficial to train the opposite low low carb um we hear this um, this term metabolic flexibility abused <laughs> a lot um yeah uh, because pe- people use it without really like understanding what it what it means uh, sometimes but of course metabolic flexibility would mean that you your engine can use whatever fuel you throw at it, whether it's carbohydrate or fat. If no carbohydrate is available, okay, your your engine should switch to fat. Um, if a lot of carbohydrate is available, it can switch to carbohydrate. And I think that would be sort of ideal case scenario. But that you wouldn't develop that if you trained every day high carb. Um, you wouldn't develop it if you avoided carb uh, at all cost uh, throughout. So the only way to do this is to mix it up. Have some days where you train high carb, but then other days where you really try to train with low carb and try mm-hmm. to stimulate your uh, fat metabolism. And I, I think that is me talking as a practitioner as well so when i when i work with athletes we in especially in the preparation phase there's definitely days where we 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 train with low carbohydrate and uh, that doesn't mean that the training is easy um we we send them off uh, at uh, cyclists off at uh, decent intensities i would i would say an intensity where you would definitely use carbohydrate normally uh, but you would also use a lot of fat um and they come back and it's yeah it's exhausting it's it's a it's a very hard training session it's not like an easy sort of uh, pedal for a few hours as uh, as mm. some people do it um, but if you want to stimulate fat metabolism you really have to stimulate it and you don't do that if you just if your intensity is so low that uh, yeah it's just walking walking pace or slightly more yeah um but you can see if you do that you can see that they improve in just a few weeks time so if you ask them to do the same thing at the same intensity like the next week and the week after that there is like a real improvement they can just do the same training for longer now that's sort of the practitioner side if we if we look at the research it's um it's a slightly different story, I think. If we if we look at the studies, there isn't a huge amount of information there to uh, to support this uh, type of training. Um, I still believe that it works, but I think the the research is is usually done over periods of three weeks, two three weeks, um, four weeks sometimes. Um, those are in terms of training like really short uh, periods. Um, in terms of doing research and controlling everything, it's very long, <laughs> right? <laughs> if you if you try to control food intake and training in in a group of athletes for for that period, it's like four weeks. is uh, is crazy long. Yeah. Um, but to expect like training adaptations 
performance improvements in four weeks in usually a group of already trained athletes maybe that's uh, that's a little bit optimistic in four mm. weeks so um, if you purely look at what happens in the muscle you can see some changes again the studies are very consistent um, in terms of actual performance improvements uh, not so clear yeah yeah so i think there's another area where someone needs to spend a lot of a lot of time doing some longer uh, studies but yeah very difficult to do yeah definitely all right and one final question before we move on to our bonus round to finish up with uh, and again more as a, a practitioner i guess it can be sometimes difficult to pay, for people to kind of remember their fueling plan whether it's you know an ironman or a marathon or an ultra or um, cycling whatever um what are your i mean I've, you know some people set timers on their watch to beep every so often to remember to, to eat or drink but it doesn't really say what or how much or anything like that you see sometimes pro cyclists have the little um, thing on the the tube of their bike with kind of the little symbols depicting the plan yeah. um any other sort of tips or strategies that that people might find useful to help them kind of remember the strategy and, and help them execute it on race day I think um, the, mo the most important thing is, is try to keep it simple. So, uh, I mean, of course, you can get a plan where in the, in the first hour you do this, in the second hour you do that, and in the third hour you mix in uh, a new gel and then you go over to caffeine. Just If you have a plan that just makes it really simple to execute, is two gels and a drink every hour. Uh, that would be probably preferred and of course then it's very easy to sort of memorize and um, it's not always possible and especially in like in Ironman races it's sometimes very difficult to do those uh, those sort of things because you have phases where you want to build in solid foods and gels and then you want to move to uh, drinks a little bit more um, something that we struggled with with this um, when we developed this software, uh, the core software as, as well. So um, I think in that case, um, and the software does this for you, it, it just gives you this little uh, cheat sheet that uh, you can wrap around your wrist or uh, put on the top tube of your uh, of your bike that basically tells you this this was the plan that, uh, that yeah. you had. This, these are the times that you need to take it um and yeah so the the top tube stickers that you uh, mentioned they they actually come from that idea that's mm -hmm. gosh it goes back five years now i think um yep. that that uh, pro rider started to use that mm. well i might hand over to steph now to finish up with our bonus round all right. Um, this is where our listeners get to learn just a little bit more about Uaska, um, other than carbohydrate. Um, so <laughs> if you went back to the end of high school and you started down a completely different career path, so not in sport or nutrition, um, what do you think you'd do? Ooh, I'm not sure I would want to do something else. Um, <laughs> but uh, I... I mean, I would probably be a photographer because that's uh, that's another passion that uh, yeah. that I have, and uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I find it amazing how some photo photographers are just so good at just capturing just moments, and uh, so yeah, I have 
great admiration for that. So I would love to uh, to have some of that uh, talent. You you have some of that talent because I've seen some of the snaps you take on Instagram. So um, yeah. Um, so we we um we had Andy Jones on sorry or not all that long ago Al um well actually last year but it doesn't seem like that um and he mentions about the bobsled ride that you were both on um Al and I yeah. were interested in how that experience was oh that honestly one of, one of the worst experiences of my life <laughs> so. It's, it seems such a great idea before we got into, yeah, it's, it seemed like the best idea. And then, um, so it, it was actually, it was in Salt Lake City. It was on the Olympic, uh, on the Olympic uh, track. And um, so we, it was in a four-man uh, bob where the, uh, the pilot was uh, like very trained, actually, I think the record holder on that, uh, on, on that track. Um, so the question was like, um, who wants to sit where and, uh, uh, where the last position in the bop is always, that's the roughest, that's the roughest position. That's the, <laughs> that's not the smoothest ride. So I was very quick to put up my hand. Oh, that's where I want to be. <laughs> I want the, the real, the real experience. But, uh, I think I reg- regretted that after the first turn. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Yeah, no, it was um, a seriously uh, rough uh, experience. <laughs> so so bad, so bad that uh, I wasn't able to run for four weeks after that. Uh, oh wow! wow. <laughs> after that yeah, right. So respect for the guys that uh, yeah. that do this. Yeah, they definitely got a stronger neck, stronger neck than I have. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what's a sport you've always wanted to try but you haven't? had the chance apart from bobsledding <laughs> yeah I've, I've tried a lot of different different things one of the one of the things that i've never um uh never done uh but it's very close to uh to home and the things that i uh, do because i've done like a lot of ironman uh, races i've ran a lot of a uh, lot of marathons but i've never done anything longer than uh, a marathon and there are a number of ultra runs that are definitely on my uh, radar i'm not sure how good i'll be at it because i i get very sore even like in a in the last part of a marathon so just extending that it's just uh, yeah it makes me wonder but that's sometimes that's a reason to try it and uh, so that's yeah. definitely something i would love to do at some point yeah yeah something like hard rock 100 yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh bloody hell. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> I'm joking. Yeah, no. uh, yeah, we'll we'll go straight to that one. <laughs> yeah. No, there's yep. a there's a there's a few yeah, they're long yep. long events that, yeah, are, that are UTMB, on my on my yeah. list. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Exactly. Well, of course, Jeff's yeah. Jeff's just done five hours on the treadmill for me yesterday. No way. Yeah, because yeah, I felt I felt sorry for our trying to recruit participants, so I thought I'd be a good friend. And I'll run five Oof. hours for him, and wow. um, never, never. Uh, well, I want to say never again, but I've got to do it in two weeks' time. So after that, never again. Um, oh wow! Easy, easy on the trails, but on the treadmill, horrible. Yeah. Wow, that's yeah. that's crazy. Five hours. Can't, <laughs> can't even imagine. No, you, you don't want like it, didn't you? <laughs> you did a five-hour study. 
Or was that on a bike? I can't remember now. That was on the bike, yeah. Uh, on the bike is no problem. Well, it's, yeah. it's a bit bo- boring, but it's no problem. <laughs> yeah. And your favourite mo- moment from the um, Tokyo Olympics or the Paralympics? Ooh, that's, uh, that's hard, I think. Tricky one. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's because um, the whole experience was uh, was a bit different. So with mm. um, with the Dutch Olympic team, we... Uh, I, I arrived in the uh, in the village, and uh, almost immediately we had a positive uh, COVID case. So everything that I planned to do had to be uh, changed. Uh, we had to put people in isolation. I was running back and forth, uh, making sure that they were fed from the dining hall to uh, to their rooms. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was like almost impossible task because it was just me, uh, doing, doing the running. Uh, mm-hmm. there was a lot of paperwork for every bag that I took away from the, uh, the dining hall. And it was a very tricky, very difficult situation. If you start your Olympic games with some or someone who's tested positive, who's going to miss they're like their dream right they've like worked for this event for so long and then finally it's there and then before you can even start um there's a positive test so and it affected the uh, the whole team now the my favorite moment is it's maybe not a moment but just it's more like how the rest of the team dealt with this like every day there was this like uncertainty am i going to test positive or not uh, can I actually compete or not? Um, but yeah, the team the team did so well uh, managing this, and then yeah, performing the way they did with a record number of medals was just uh, yeah amazing. So that that would be the 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 most positive thing that I took away from Tokyo. Yeah, awesome, cool. Well, thank you so much for your time, Aska. Uh, this is a topic that we've wanted to cover for a while now, and I think it's a very common question that runners, cyclists, and triathletes have uh, about you know how much to have both in training and on race day. So I think we've managed to cover lots of different angles from that and, and get your experience mm-hmm. both in terms of doing a lot of that original research that went into those recommendations, but then also your experience working with athletes across those different sports. So thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much, and yeah, hopefully uh, people find it useful, and uh, and they can try some of these uh, these things and uh, do better in training and races. So, yeah. awesome! Thank you so Thanks. much. Cheers. <laughs> awesome! Thank you very much, Asker. Um, I will hand it to the one and only Alan McCubbin to now summarise and maybe I'll add a little bit near the end if, if he's missing anything, you know, just make sure you're up to, up to scratch. That's it. That's it. <laughs> to be honest, I'm not sure how much I do need to summarise because I think Asker did such an amazing did job at job. explaining everything. Um, we covered a lot of ground in that episode, but I think I'm done in a really clear and concise way, which is really great. And I think reflects that, you know, he's very much across the theoretical stuff as a researcher, but you could tell he also works day to day with athletes and ex- spends a lot of time explaining this stuff to, to athletes as well as, um, you know, pure physiologists or scientists. But I guess the first thing that Asker talked about in terms of, you know, that question of how much carb should I be having during training and racing, as he said, it's kind of, you know, 
you can have too much, you can have not enough. You've got to find also like that Goldilocks effect. You're trying to find the bit in the middle which is just right. And that's, you know, that'll vary depending on what you're doing, how long you're doing it for, and at, at what intensity that you're doing it. Um, but the general guidelines at this stage, so I guess that's probably a, a good place to start. Uh, and then you, you know, take all those nuances that we discussed and, and sort of, you know, modify things from there. You know, the guidelines are never meant to, you know, the guidelines are not rules, kind of like the um, Pirates of the Caribbean. But yeah, so the general consensus is, you know, if you're up to two hours of exercise, probably, you know, 40 to 60 grams an hour of carbohydrate is probably fine. And because we can absorb you know, up to around 60 grams an hour of, of glucose or um, different types of starches that digest down into just glucose, just fine. Um, there's no limiting factor there. So the type of carbohydrate doesn't matter uh, when you're consuming less than 60 grams an hour. Once you start getting above that, that's when the types of carbohydrates start to become important as well in terms of about 60 grams an hour plus or minus maybe 10 um, from glucose or products that digest down into glucose, which is most of your typical um, starchy products will digest down into primarily glucose, maltodextrin as well. Um, and then things like table sugar are half glucose, half fructose, just to bear that in mind. Uh, and then once you start getting up above sort of 65-ish grams an hour, the, the additional carbohydrate should come from fructose. So it's not about any special ratio. The whole two-to-one stuff that you see on all the different packets of products um, is simply just it's intended to give you 60 grams of glucose and then an additional 30 of fructose. But you can have 60 plus 20, 60 plus 40, 60 plus 50. The ratios will all be different, but it's the whole point is the 60 of glucose and then fructose on top of that to whatever level you end up getting to, um, not in any specific ratio. That's um, We can, I think, put that myth to bed, which is nice. Uh, in terms of running versus cycling, you know, often a lot of runners will struggle more to get in that amount of carbohydrate and so once you're getting up beyond kind of three hours of exercise the recommendations go up to about 90 grams per hour uh, unless you're sort of just plodding along you know Asker mentioned you know if you're going sort of four and a half hours plus marathon time then probably that's unnecessary but if you're quicker than that in terms of pace and intensity then yes that that higher carbohydrate intake might be worth it um, for running, you know, I guess there's some potential constraints there. Some of it is probably more practical as much as anything. We talked about you know, the gut being a limiting factor in terms of how much carbohydrate you can absorb that is trainable. Um, probably in runners, because it's harder to carry as much with you and to you know, chew and swallow while you're running compared to on the bike, you probably get less practice at training the gut in that way. And so when it does come to race day, surprise, surprise, runners tend to tolerate less. Uh, whether there's anything special about running in terms of the actual mechanical action is actually not that clear. Um, and, and Aska talked about some examples, including Haile Gebrselesi, who have managed to get, you know, upwards of 90 grams an hour of carbohydrate whilst running. Um, the other example we had was S. Gaskell um, <laughs> with the 90 grams an hour. And, and it, it can be done in runners, uh, but you know, most runners are not well adapted to that. And so it's going to require a period of adaptation, which is practically easier to achieve on the bike than it is while running. Uh, I think for um, for triathlon, the, the issue around gut issues more on the run than the bike is confounded by the fact that the run happens a few hours after the bike. And so is it the fact that it's later in the exercise or is it something special about the running itself? 
not 100% clear there hasn't been that much research into running versus cycling, but it doesn't look like there are major differences that we can tell. It's just more about a matter of doing that gut training. Um, if you want more about that gut training, I think we touched on that, Steph, back in episode 7A, which we talked about, you know, why do I get gut issues during exercise? So if that is you and that's stopping you from getting more carbohydrate in, recommend you go back and have a listen to that episode, episode 7A of the podcast, and you might find some uh, little pearls of wisdom in there for you. And then finally, I guess we talked about some of the practical things, you know, having access to carbohydrate and opportunities to consume it during exercise. We kind of put to bed that myth about the 6 to 8% carbohydrate drink in terms of sports drinks and things because everything mixes in your gut. It's going to mix with the gels and the bars and everything you eat anyway, so it doesn't end up at 6 six to 8%. And in fact, a lot of the modern sports drinks that are helping people get to those higher levels of intake are more around the 10 to 15%. If you think about things like Morton or SIS Beta Fuel and, and these kinds of products, uh, and generally people are having those um, without any specific issues. They're not causing major issues across the board in people that use them. They're designed to do you know, quite the opposite. Um, so that helps if you have those more concentrated forms of carbohydrate, notwithstanding you still need fluid from a hydration point of view, then that can help you get that carbohydrate in. And obviously if you're running, there's you know it's not as easy to carry things with you. So if you're training, if you can set up a little kind of mock aid station or um, have some way of collecting things along the way or doing a circuit around your house where you pick up stuff along the way, um, or you have, you know, you're in a running group with a coach. The coach might be able to carry those things uh, for you. Um, gives you that opportunity to actually train that um, to the extent that you could on a race day. Whereas um, obviously on the bike, you it's a lot easier to carry things with you. Have I missed anything, Steph? No, you've done well. But I'll add a spin just in terms of the gut relation, just because that's what I love and that's it. what I'm writing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in terms of obviously that um, ratio, yeah, there's no magic, um, you know, between the two and one um, just for listeners to remember, which we would have spoken about, I think, in episode 7A with the gut issues or the FODMAP stuff. Um, fructose generally is not always absorbed that well. Um, glucose does help with the absorption of fructose. So um just being careful when you are playing around with increasing the fructose, particularly if it's going, you know, more than 30 grams, it, it is where it is an individual tolerance. Um, so that's where, you know, it's just a matter of assessing how well um, you are tolerating that and just be being mindful of that. Um, and anyone that has IBS or FODMAP intolerances may find that a bit more difficult. Um, so be mindful of that. Um, and then I just say, again, in terms of the carbohydrate recommendations and going for the higher amounts, um, we may find that it can be less well tolerated perhaps in the longer duration exercise. So the ultras just because of other factors as well, just where the gut is not um, functioning as well. So emptying, motility, um, digestion. Um, is seen um, perhaps not to be as as good as when it's in that shorter duration and hopefully we'll be able to explain some of those things when I um, am able to submit these two papers and thesis um, so we can add on top of that but yeah very good mm. um, summary for sure. Yep cool and I guess just coming back to that if people are struggling with those sort of gut issues in that ultra endurance stuff then it's looking beyond 
it's just the gels or it's just exactly. the type of carbohydrate. It's looking at all the other factors that we talked about in episode 7A. Yeah, and even what we spoke about in this one where are you actually doing any gut training and are you actually doing your sessions with consuming carbohydrate and what's your actual day-to-day diet like in terms of carbohydrate intake? Yep, yeah, absolutely. Cool. Okay. Next episode, Al, we actually have someone that you have been working with for a while. Um, So it's still episode 39B, how much carbs should I be having during training and racing? Um, But I'm going to let you introduce at least Liam's surname because I'm terrible with with this. Um, But you've been working with um, Liam, a a paratriathlete. Yeah, so Liam Toomey is our guest next week. So uh, Liam's another triathlete from uh, Daniel Stefano's squad. So we've had Emma Jeffcoat on before a couple of times. We've had David Bryant on before talking about protein. Uh, and now yeah. we've got Liam. So, yeah, Liam's one of the, the paratriathlon guys. Uh, he's over in Girona in Spain at the moment. So good to catch awesome. up with him over there and find out what the uh, the life at the endless summer's like mm. and um, how warm it is over in Europe at the moment because I know speaking to the guys it's it's been pretty hot so yeah we'll have a chat to Liam um we did some work with him earlier this year around how much carbohydrate he was having particularly in training the paratriathlon events are fairly short by their nature they don't need a lot of carbohydrate but where he does need some is more in the some of the longer training sessions so mm-hmm. we'll talk a little bit about the work that we did there um and and what's what's come of that Mm, yeah, that'll be um, that'll be good, and be good to talk about. Yeah, the differences with um, his intake depending on um, what he's doing um, with the the exercise modes as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, cool. Awesome. Well, just again, please send us any questions that you've got in terms of um, exercise nutrition. Um, at the long munch on all your popular social media platforms and um, yeah if you find any of our episodes episodes interesting and you think your um, buddy may like it or your training partner please um, yeah pass that on to them as well and we'd love you to subscribe and don't forget there's a whole back catalogue there so if you're asking a particular question or you're looking for an answer to a particular question it may well be there. You may just have to scroll down and click the load more button at the bottom of your app and just scroll down towards the bottom uh, because there's about 18 months worth of podcasts there now and they're all still relevant, covering a whole bunch of different common questions. Mm. Yep. Cool. Otherwise, we will love and leave you and see you next week. Will do. See you, everyone.